From the Oxano Podcast Network, welcome to My Ministry Breakthrough, hosted by me, Brian Rose. This podcast is all about pastors sharing unfiltered stories of moments large and small, of times when the fog of ministry chaos clears and breakthrough clarity happens. I'm thinking of the the middle-aged mom, maybe younger than middle-aged mom, who leads a life group of teenagers. And you, you see how the strategy is filtered down through all age levels. It's not like we have a separate student ministry strategy. Nope. They do life groups and serve teams as well. And so when a, a mom approaching middle age is able to get beyond herself and realize that she has gifts and she has ministry that she can share that can shape and mold the next generation, what an incredible win that is. And, and, and the assurance that I get that knowing that those teenage girls are sitting at her feet and learning uh, sometimes tough wisdom that was learned with great difficulty but ultimately wisdom that's timeless. That's just a win. And I know that's not possible without the Holy Spirit. She's not doing that because of her natural goodness or her natural wit. She's doing it because she's awake to and empowered by the Spirit. My guest in this episode is Talbot Davis, senior pastor of Good Shepherd Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. I love this episode because I think you're going to learn a lot from Talbot and also from Good Shepherd. Uh, some breakthrough moments in his ministry and, and for the church. One of the very first right off the top is, is really the breakthrough moment for Talbot of why he thinks using Twitter has made him a better preacher. I'm in a lot of churches and Good Shepherd is the one of the most actually diverse churches I know. Not aspirationally diverse. They're not a church that wants to be diverse, that wants to have a reflection of the community around him they're actually reaching a diverse group of people. Talbot and I also talk about their decentralized approach to starting groups and the difference between being a sprinter and a marathoner when it comes to groups. We have a good time talking about this kind of staff member that irritates Talbot, and it may not be what you think, and how an empty office desk is actually a good sign with some accountability. Last, you know, Good Shepherd wants to normalize what used to be remedial about church, about services, uh, about really the spirit in there. And so all the way down to the altar call and walking the aisle at the end of a a service. There's a difference between being a charismatic church and being a church with a lot of charismatic people in it. So Good Shepherd, diverse, charismatic, multiplying. Did I mention their United Methodist Church? Lean in, listen up to this episode of My Ministry Breakthrough with Talbot Davis, Senior Pastor at Good Shepherd United Methodist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Talbot, how are you today? I'm doing well, and and, uh, I'm excited to be here too. Well, thanks for being a part of My Ministry Breakthrough. Uh, You and Good Shepherd have been such a great partner uh, with Oxano, with Will Mancini personally, myself personally. Uh, through the uh, years. It's fun to get to capture a little bit of your story and share it with others. Plus, you're a great follow on Twitter. I love, uh, <laughs> I love seeing your Twitter account. Uh, you're probably uh, better at Twitter than most of the pastors I get to be around. And um, I'm not sure if that's intentional or not. Is that an intentional thing? Twitter is just where you kind of sense yourself uh, being a, a leadership voice there? 
Uh, well, yeah, because I have fun with it with Methodism, and it's a great place to improve wordsmithing, and, and you get your wordsmithing down well on Twitter, and that really translates into, into preaching and leading. So, yeah, I love what how that's mean? kind of developed. Unpack that a little bit. What uh, do you mean? The ability to say compelling things in a concise way and uh, in the way that I do my messages, which is a, a bottom line, a one-point message, I just think the skills that I've learned on Twitter of saying things memorably but briefly really translates into doing that same thing in a Sunday morning message. You know, I got to say that's, that's true. And I think it's overlooked by many pastors. I think there's a lot of people who avoid social media, maybe even discredit social media. And so you're coming back around and saying, no, listen, we can really, social media makes me better. Yes, without a doubt, makes me a lot better. That's great. Well, there it is right there, right off the top, a little bit of bonus breakthrough there. <laughs> social media makes me better. I love it. Hey, Talbot, give us a snapshot of Good Shepherd. About three minutes or less, just, just kind of let, let everybody out there uh, know some of the, some of the nature and, and calling of Good Shepherd. Sure. It was started in 1991, so it was never a traditional church. It's always been modern for its time in worship. And uh, like you mentioned, about 2,000 people on a Sunday, and we have a, two different locations, three different venues and two languages that, that 2,000 people includes our Latino ministries service. And uh, we represent about 40 different countries on a given Sunday, as well as uh, people who are born in the USA, and that includes people who are Anglo and African-American and Latino and Asian. So it's what we call a full-color church. And uh, in terms of the Methodist brand, we would definitely be uh, global in our theology, historic and orthodox in our theology, biblical in our theology, and yet thoroughly modern in our approach. And we have about 30 staffers, and I've been here since, I'm the second pastor, been here since 1999. Let's dive back into that full color color, a few minutes here, Talbot, because I know there's a lot of churches and leaders out there who want to be more diverse, but aren't, who yeah. think they're more diverse than they actually are, who know that they should be more diverse. Uh, what's behind the diversity? I mean, because you're saying there's 40 different countries, nationalities that actually attend. Not that yeah. people like can trace their roots back, but there's 40 no. different nationalities that attend. Give me, yeah. give us, how? Well, in the, in the Spanish-speaking service, there's 15, between 15 and 20 right there, virtually okay. every country in Latin America and South America. And a, a great mistake that many Anglos make is to think that Latino worshipers, Spanish-speaking friends, are monolithic and n- not at all. People from Argentina and people from Guatemala, quite different from one another. People from Puerto Rico and El Salvador different from one another. And yet our team has been able to coalesce all those different nationalities under the one language, under the, the higher banner of Jesus. What's and been something that's that, helped? Uh, let, let's pause there. What's been something that's helped you guys do that? Has there, been a, has there been a breakthrough in that? Has there been a moment where you realize, hey, we're doing this wrong, so we need to do this better? Can you put a finger believe, on that for others? I, I believe that our pastor, who is himself Puerto Rican, has not allowed there to be pecking orders. Be, because in a, sometimes in the in the Spanish speaking cultures, certain nations uh, assert themselves over others, and uh, our our pastor just has not allowed that to happen. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and 
And the, in, the, in the bigger picture, Brian, uh, diversity not only within the Spanish-speaking service, but in the English-speaking service. And for that one, we have people from all over West Africa and Europe and Asia. Uh, the, we, we are really strong that diversity is never the cause. It's always the result. It's the result of lifting Jesus high. Jesus is the cause, what we call a living relationship with Jesus. That's the cause. If diversity ever becomes the cause, what you get is sort of uh, political correctness. And I think we've all had enough of that. And we don't want political correctness without any real foundation. And so it's just this glorious thing that when you lift Jesus up high, and I don't have a lot of sermons that I give about diversity and uh, it's almost as if the more you talk about Jesus, the more different kinds of people come. And that, that's now that's not to say we haven't been strategic in our hiring and in our outreach, but fundamentally, I, I think our diversity comes because people know it's not a game, that we really do want the church to look like on earth what it's going to look like in heaven. Well, that and I sense that a lot of leaders would agree with you. I think they would even say, you know what? We full wholeheartedly believe that Jesus is the cause, not diversity, but they seek diversity and yet always seem to kind of not get there. What's been, what's been the breakthrough for you guys to actually see diversity? I mean, are there some things or some intentional practices? Are there some accidental practices? What, what can you kind of second uh, Monday morning quarterback for us has been, has been a couple of things that if there's another pastor out there that says, man, I, I really want this and I really believe that, you know, there's some, some things I could do or pursue. Yes, it's, it's been both accidental and purposeful. Okay. And I, I would say that simply our location is, is part of it because we okay. are in a part of Charlotte that is naturally diverse. We don't need to, in, in our part of Charlotte, they don't need to bus students around for racial diversity. It's here. And so that really helped. But the reason we were able to tap into it is because from the very, very beginning, we've done a lot of door knocking ministry. We call it Bless This House. And this is not people who've come to church yet. It's a high touch, low threat way of inviting people to church and welcoming them to the area. And the more we were knocking on doors, and I'm, I'm talking about the early 2000s we were doing this, the more I noticed that the people answering the doors didn't look like me. And so that started us on this journey of how do we make sure that our messaging and our graphics and our hiring are not reflecting necessarily who we are, but who we want to be. And the more we lived into that, the more we became who we wanted to be. And, and whatever strides we've made towards diversity, it just, we, we fully realized we've not arrived and it makes us realize how much farther we need to go. Man, that's, that's great. What I hear you saying is that when someone new moved into the area, you guys were some of the first to welcome them. And, and that they played got, a role. Uh, they got a knock on their door. They got a world famous refrigerator magnet. That's our welcome <laughs> gift. And, and for 20 years, people have been laughing when I say, we got a world famous refrigerator magnet for you. And they always laugh. And uh, yeah, so that's been our, that's the high touch, low threat. You know, they answer the door and we don't say, well, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd be going? We instead, yeah, yeah. We, we, here's a housewarming gift from our, from our church to you. Mm. And uh, that's just, and, and we, I, out of the 2000 people we have on a Sunday, and I don't know, I assume that, come, that draws from a pool of 
3,500 or 4,000 people who call this church home. I would say about 400 of them, their first contact with our church was through Bless This House. Wow. Actually, yesterday we, we have a prayer ministry at the altar and I met a lady and she wrote down where she lived. And I said, oh yeah, I know that neighborhood. And she said, yes, you do, because you came by my house. And I don't remember coming by her house at all, but that's how she got connected to our church a couple of years ago. So there's, there's stories like that all over, uh, not only all over Good Shepherd, but even all over our part of Charlotte among people who haven't ever been to church here, but they remember because they still have their magnet on their refrigerator. I love that. I love that. And I, I do think that you guys, just from experience, are, are one of the most diverse churches, um, truly diverse, not just kind of hopefully or, or um, aspirationally diverse. Do that. And I know you guys hold, you know, you've already said it, you know, that full color. You guys hold that full on, full color value high. What are some decisions yeah. you guys have had to make one way or the other in light of that value? Have there been any standout decisions that that value has forced you to make, uh, like either for the negative or for the good that you can recall right offhand? Well, we've, we have certainly taken it into account for hiring. Mm-hmm. and uh, um, Meaning you were would... intentional about thinking about racial diversity, representing the neighborhood as you're filling staff roles. Yes. And how, how even can we write the job description in such a way, or the, the ministry notice in such a way that people who are not Anglo will apply? And so that we have the most diverse pool that we can get. Because the temptation gonna... that, that people, oh, there's the United Methodist Church, it's probably all white. It's, it's yeah. That, uh, you know, on and on and on. And, and so we have, a, we, we have a little bit of a barrier to fight with that. And so we've, we've written carefully some of the job notices and have, have uh, hired intentionally. Yeah, that's great. Write carefully, hire intentionally. Yes. Uh, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense there. Has there been in the last five years a defining day you can go back to? When, you know, where this podcast is all about those breakthrough moments and really kind of capturing the stories of breakthrough moments in the lives of, of pastors really to inspire breakthrough moments in others. So I'd ask you, Talbot, has there been kind of one of those defining day breakthrough moments in the last five years? Yes, it was just over five years ago. And, and the, the reason I tell this is because it, it uh, demonstrates the difference vision clarity and the vision frame makes. Uh, but in, in early 2013, we, we actually, Brian, we had been involved in the battle against human trafficking before it was sort of cause du jour, before everybody yeah, knew yeah. about it. Yeah. And so yeah. we did a couple of nice efforts back in 20, 2007. And then 2010, we actually uh, raised uh, around Christmas $207,000 to give away to the International Justice Mission wow. to battle the rape for profit industry overseas. Was that something that, then, was, that you guys saw as an epidemic in Charlotte or was it something well, that just was close to the heart of a leader there at the time? We, we had seen a presentation from International Justice Mission and they battle yeah. it in Cambodia and Thailand. Yeah. And then in 2013, 2012, 2013, we realized this goes on in the Carolinas as well. So why don't we, now we have this, this, uh, nomenclature, this titling called a radical impact project, these, these big, bold projects that we do that are 
are sort of brief, but over the top in size and in scope. And why don't we do a radical impact project that benefits trafficking victims in the Carolinas? And so we located a ministry that restores girls who've been rescued from the rape for profit industry domestically. They needed a site. They needed a facility. And I was like, hey, we, we have a pretty good track record of raising some kind of extraordinary sums of money, $207,000 about three years ago. And so what we did in January that year was we had a sermon series called Home. And the subtitle was uh, Healing Our Homes While Building a Home That Heals. Mm-hmm. And it was all built to the final Sunday in January, the last Sunday of that series, where the whole offering, we don't do special offerings. If, if the project isn't worth giving everything you receive that day away, then it's not worth doing at all. I love that. So, so the whole offering was to leave the church and to go to build this structure for, to house the girls who've been rescued. Yeah. Uh, and at that time, five years ago, we were getting about $50,000 a week in an offering. And so our challenge goal was 125000 and our miracle goal was 150000 and, and so we were very well organized. We treated it like a capital campaign and prayed about it and, and talked about rape for profit and, and actually named the reality that if, it, if Christian men were not part of the sickening demand, then there wouldn't be such a largely traumatized supply of girls. And we just named that and it was storm worthy and and awkward, but it absolutely needed to be expressed. And so anyway, uh, and the people were really bought into this vision and God had a very different understanding of a miracle because our miracle goal that day was $150,000. And the people of the church on that one day gave $400,000 to build this house for girls who have been rescued and are being restored. So that was that, uh, the, the next Sunday when we announced the amount, it was just, you know, audible gasps at all of our services. And it was just pretty astounding. And, and, and I trace that not only to the cause and, and not only to our skill, I think we had some, some excellent skill at pulling that off and not only to the spirit, but I think the difference between 200,000 in 2010 and 400,000 in 2013 is that we we then in between those years we moved into inviting all people into a living relationship with Jesus Christ that's our mission right. and we had the vision frame and we knew who we are and who we're not and knowing those two things really helped us have incredible focus and all that landed on that kind of result it so that like would it, be a I was going to say it sounds like it also built trust in the congregation Talbot that by having that sense of identity, by having that solid consistency of, no, this is who we are, that opened doors of trust where that investment, you know, was, was um, the confidence in giving that, hey, yeah. we give because we know this vision. We know this heartbeat. Yes. And we, we, and we know this is what our church does, that every so often we do these ridiculous projects that don't make yeah. any sense that benefit the the least and the lost and the traumatized and we can't afford it, but that's why God blesses it. That's, that's incredible. What's, what's been something like that recently? What's been, um, whether it's through a radical impact project, which I know is a part of your strategy, uh, you know, in, in, in building disciples and inviting all people into that living relationship. What's been something you guys have done recently? 
Yeah, more recently, and it's not. this was not a radical impact project, but this did have to do with how we do life groups because uh, our, our strategy involves worship gatherings and life groups and serve teams and these radical impact projects. And uh, earlier this year, early in 2018, we, uh, borrowing a method from some of our Methodist friends. Very nice, the method. Uh, yes. Uh, it's a, gr- they, we call it, they call it a grab, gather, and grow groups. Grab, radically- gather, grow group, huh? Y- yes. Started by uh, Harvest Church in South Georgia, another large, okay. modern, evangelical Methodist church. And it's a radically decentralized approach to starting life groups. And what we did for a sermon series that was actually called 167. And it was uh, because the world has you for 167 hours a week and church has you for one. And so it was a series where we really looked carefully at what are you allowing into your brain those 167 hours of the week? It was one of those series that really drilled down into the fact that the wisdom of the world is foolishness in the eyes of God and how people are seduced by the world's wisdom. They don't even know what's happening. But we produced all our own curricula. We produced our own teaching videos. We did everything in-house. And uh, then in the, out in the lobby for the next, for, for, for about three weeks before that series even started, we said, we just want to empower you all. You pick up, you grab that material that we prepared you gather some of your friends from work or some of your friends from your neighborhood or some of your friends from school and you lead them. We trust that God has instilled in you leadership potential and you lead them in these conversations. We've prepared this material for you. So what you do is facilitate. And it is, a. It, so we went from having about 70 life groups, which is kind of our typical to for that series, we had 185. Wow. And, and uh, maybe my favorite one was a sixth grade boy who picked up the material and got some of his middle schoolers to watch the, the teaching videos and to go through the questions. And, and well, what, what is it that the world is teaching us about money and values and sex and, and all of these things that you just love the fact that sixth graders are talking about together. And when you entrust that God has put leadership potential in a lot more people than you realize, they step into it. So we were really happy with how that turned out. We're going to do the same approach in October of this year. Okay. So did those, what was, what was the ongoing, you know, result of those moments of those groups? Did you guys have other stories of groups continuing on other things happening there? Yes. We haven't finished all the uh, analysis of the statistics of how many of them went on. We, we went into it knowing, Hey, we're going to get, between 150 and 200 for short term. And we need to realize that most of those 150 or 200 life groups, those people would never be in a life group otherwise. Right. And because, you know, Brian, some people are marathoners and some people are sprinters. (laughs) And I think most spiritual marathoners spend half of their lives wringing their hands that the sprinters will never become marathoners. Right. And when you just realize, oh, they're not gonna, yeah. How can I how can I address their spiritual lives while well, not compromising the value of ongoing life groups? But how can I address the spiritual lives of all these sprinters I got around me? And that's just so much a healthier way to approach it. Absolutely. So even if zero, and it's not zero, but even if none of them continued, it's still a win that 
for six weeks or, or four weeks, excuse me, four weeks, those groups gathered and they grew. I love that sprinter versus marathoner, you know, concept too, because Talbot, you've seen me, uh, you know, I'm not going to be a marathoner, but I did uh-huh. get two miles in today, right? I <laughs> did. You, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a 5Ker. I'm a solid 5Ker. And it's yeah. ridiculous for me to think, you know, for somebody to have uh, a, leader, a leader to say, well, Brian, you know, you're not really complete until you're running marathons versus saying, man, go run two slow miles. That's better than, than zero miles, right? Yes, yes. I've never been the senior leader in an organization. I like to tell people I've had every uh, role in a church, but put my head on the pillow at night with those things a senior pastor puts her head on the pillow with. And so I've always been uh, the staff member. And I love, I love the thought that there are things that staff members do that give you energy as a lead pastor. There's also things that irritate you as a, as a senior pastor. You got any, got yeah. any examples? I mean, you don't, talk, don't name names unless, unless they need to be named, but, you know. Yes, the, the, the irritating one is non-initiative that if uh, you're at your desk and you're not out in the community instigating relationships, assimilating people into the life of the church, waiting for the work to come to you, that's irritating. So you actually like seeing empty desks. You actually believe that uh, pastors, staff members aren't necessarily the most effective by keeping office hours. Correct, correct. Now you need to remember, Brian, that uh, my first nine years out of seminary, I was a small town pastor in, in a town called Monroe, North Carolina, about 30 miles from Charlotte. Okay. And I was just out in that community all the time. And I knew that if I wasn't out there making connections and sort of drumming up enthusiasm for our church, nobody was going to come because you, right, you, right. be, you had to be going there to get there. You didn't drive by there. And, right, right. and and I just kind of naively assumed, well, isn't everybody motivated this way? And and I, I realized five or ten years into my work at Good Shepherd, uh, hiring people that nope, not everybody's motivated that way. And so uh, I, I what I realized is that it, that's why it's so vital to clarify expectations okay. as part of the hiring process. Don't wait till you've hired them and then get all bitter that they're not wired like you. It's really your fault for not being clear about what the expectations are. So we, I think we're much- some though that would be that would be cautious, Talbot. That would say, yeah, but how do you know? Like they they kind of look at that at that youth minister or that collegiate pastor, and they say, how do I actually know they're working? How do, how do I know they're not just kind of goofing off? There's some there's some, and maybe it's a generational shift that say, well, unless they're in the office. How do how do I keep them accountable? How do I know they're actually doing what, what they say they're supposed to be doing? How do you how do you guys tread that balance there at Good Shepherd? Yeah, we well the we have multiplication reports. Who have you met with? How how are you multiplying yourself in ministry? So that's that's really the main way. That's actually a formal and, report. Uh, in my case, with the people who report to me, it's pretty informal. Uh, I, I think other staffers that have more have it more. Um, formalized for, for their direct reports. But it's, it's the kind of expectation that's got to be bled down through the organization. And we're not perfect at it. 
but Bastard. we're increasingly not perfectly, as James <laughs> McDonald says. <laughs> what about something that energizes you that your staff does or anything that you yeah, when, that just fires you up? When someone has the eyes of a leader, when they're able on a Sunday morning to come up to me and whisper to me uh, over three rows to your left, midway through the aisle, someone's here for the very first time. So when they have identified that first time guest, they've made the first welcome and then they've known to alert me, not in a dorky, hey, let's go meet this new person, preacher, but in a very subtle, you might want to go make a welcome over there. There's a first time guest. The, our, our Zor campus pastor, uh, before we opened Zor, and, and yet I knew he was going to be that guy, really learned to have the eyes of a leader and really knew to come and let me know someone's here for the very first time. So that always, always gives me energy. That Zor campus too, you guys. That was a that was a merger with another younger. No, it was a, it was, it was a, a it was a death and resurrection. There oh, was wow. a Zor United Methodist Church, which in 2013 was down to 20 people and 200 thousand dollars debt, and the Methodists asked us, "Would you like the property and the debt?" <laughs> and they weren't going to write off my, the debt and just give you the property. Uh, no, Methodists don't do it that way. You you get the kit and the caboodle. And my first thought was no. And and because uh, it was kind of close to here, I didn't see how it could ever be useful. And um, it, just, it had such a bad aura energy about it. And then Will Mancini and our board and other staffers. Well, I'm just really glad that this is one of those occasions where I wasn't stubborn in my leadership. They all had bigger, they had more of the eyes of a leader when it came to Zor than I did. And they all said, you got to take this over. And when we did take it over in 13, it was never with the idea of doing Sunday morning worship because it's only four miles from here. Two years later, we realized we would be fools not to worship there on Sunday morning. What was the difference this, maker there? What, why, uh, what, what a housing boom, housing boom. Okay. It, it's right on the border of, of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina and Fort Mill, South Carolina. And a lot of construction sprung up and we realized, oh my gosh, God gave us this property. Well, I guess he gave it to us for $200,000, didn't he? But he, <laughs> he gave it. <laughs> there was a string so attached. We, so that we might be centrally located in all of these new housing complexes. And guess how we grow as a church? We go out and bless houses. That's yeah. our niche. And so that's when we realized we can, we can, uh, we had to pour about a million more dollars into upfitting it so it could be venue worship. Right. And we launched that Easter of 16. And uh, a couple years later, we're, we're right in the 280 per Sunday range at that campus. So from 20 to 280. Yes. And that's, again, that's with uh, a couple of years of lying dormant. And about 10 out of those 20, uh, became part of Good Shepherd as a whole. The, the, and the other 10, as you might expect, were not going to be comfortable with what we do and yeah. found other churches that were more more sedate, more traditional and smaller. That's fine. But I'm so grateful for the 10 who've, who've stuck with us. And interestingly, they go to the Moss campus. They don't go to the Zor campus. So they, they're a part of Good Shepherd, but they're not at the original uh, Correct. location. Correct. They're, they're at the large larger theater auditorium field campus. Wow. It's kind of funny. That's, that is kind of funny, but you know, it's not, it's not unusual that in those uh, merger or, or adoption 
or revitalization, resurrection, uh, if you will, moments that a group of people who have been pretty worn out trying to keep the doors open and the lights on for the last few years uh, find find a respite um, at the at the larger campus when the, when those mm. when those things happen. Um, and so that's 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 a part of the beauty of of the body of Christ and a part of the beauty of multi-side is that there's, yeah, cause there's the they're, they're retired of trying to carry the load and trying to keep the little, the, the thing afloat. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, yes, you come be here. Don't go back out there. Don't be a part of the pioneer team. We launch out there if you don't need to. Right. Yes. Yes. What, um, with all that, with all that going on with, with the staff seminary and, multi-site, multi-language, all the diversity. What, when you sit back as a leader, what, what embodies your church just really knocking out out of the park when the mission is accomplished, Talbot? What do you celebrate the most around there? When people become fully awake to the Holy Spirit and they realize that empowered by the Spirit, they can own ministry that they could never have done by themselves. And they can have the, the, even the freedom of worship that they would have never thought was possible. So Unpack when, that when, a bit when for those, us. Like, what's that look like at Good Shepherd? Well, when uh, I, I'm thinking of the, the middle-aged mom, maybe younger than middle-aged mom, who leads a life group of teenagers and you see how the strategy is filtered down through all age levels. It's not like we have a separate student ministry strategy. Nope. They do life groups and serve teams as well. And so when a a mom approaching middle age is able to get beyond herself and realize that she has gifts and she has ministry that she can share that can shape and mold the next generation. What an incredible win that is. And, and, and the assurance that I get that knowing that those, teenage girls are sitting at her feet and learning uh, sometimes tough wisdom that was learned with great difficulty, but ultimately wisdom that's timeless. That's just a win. And I know that's not possible without the Holy Spirit. She's not doing that because of her natural goodness or her natural wit. She's doing it because she's awake to and empowered by the Spirit. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's great. I know you guys also have if I'm not mistaken, you guys actually have a, a monthly or a weekly healing service. What does that look like? Yeah, it actually, it happens uh, tonight as we're, as we're making this podcast. I guess not tonight when people are hearing it, but we have we'll, we will have a team of uh, eight to ten prayers, and people will come forward. We, 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 the biggest announcement we make is that we do not have celebrity prayers. The Holy Spirit is the only celebrity we need. So it's my code for saying. Don't wait for me, yeah. Talbot. Don't don't feel like you you got to get prayed for by the preacher. There's other people here who are empowered by the Spirit and will pray for your healing. And they, they, it will be intimate and it will be quiet and it will be reverent and people will share the deepest traumas of their lives and they'll they will let us touch them and they will let us pray over them. And the cool thing, Brian, we just started this two weeks ago. We now have on Sunday mornings not an altar call, though we still do those. But at the end of the service, we have a prayer team up at the front at the platform. We, we want to, and it's a lot of those same healing team prayers, 
we want to normalize what used to be remedial that you used to you only came to the altar if there was something really bad going on in your life and we've yeah. just kind of amped that anxiety down some and said you know most of the church will be dismissing i'm going to pray us out of here but while i do there's a group of people who are going to be gathered here at the front and if you want to talk about the message if you have a, a, a praise report if you have a prayer request or you want a prayer for healing they'll be here to talk with you and pray with you and even though that's only two weeks in we're really glad for how people are becoming more awake to the spirit by coming up and talking to other folks who are themselves awake to the spirit. The um, you've used awake to the spirit a, a couple of times here. I know that's one of your values. Where does, yeah. that, where does that come from Talbot? What's been the genesis of that? Cause it, yeah, it seems we, like that stands out as a distinction among your congregation, even within the United Methodist tribe. Yeah, that, that's that's what what a great question, and what a, a ultimately what of a kind of a sad question because Methodist, at its origins, was a Pentecostal denomination, and yet somehow in the eighteen and nineteen hundreds we became too sophisticated to be Pentecostal anymore, and so we traded Pentecostal for boring, hmm. and we just decided a long time ago. I mean, uh, I I believe that some level God's given me the gift of healing and and a, a prayer language and we we just decided i'm not we're not going to shy away from that stuff and we don't want to be a charismatic church but we're going to be a church with a lot of charismatic people in it and from the very beginning we've just owned that and um and said hey we're, we're this is the kind of church that we're going to be and uh when, when early on when we were working our way through the vision frame we we thought about calling that value we expect the holy spirit to show up uh-huh. And then we realize, oh, that sounds good. It's just heretical because the issue is never the Holy Spirit show, showing up. Right, right. He's here. As if he wasn't the there is, and it took a little minute to get it for him to remember. Yeah, we conjured him up because we prayed yeah, just yeah, the right prayer yeah. in just the right order. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. that's how we landed on Awake to the, the Spirit. And yes, and we will, we will say that on usually on more than one occasion on a Sunday morning. I love this question that comes to values because the values are, are that filter for decision and springboard for action. Give me something, give me a moment that that, that value of being awake to the Holy Spirit has changed something, has altered a decision or directed something uh, because this is in the DNA of Good Shepherd. Well, that grab, gather, and grow group method. Yeah. Uh, kind of runs counter to the, how we normally do life groups. Because normally in life groups, yeah. leaders are vetted, leaders are trained. That's how you get good leaders. However, it can be a cumbersome process. And we had kind of plateaued. Yeah, and it really came to against you, right? Yes. And, it, and so it came, do we trust that the Holy, yeah, there's a risk. We, we might get some wackerdoodle leaders out there who will, who will try and start something. But, but is it worth the risk? to trust that, that the spirit is at work in people. And we, we sometimes our processes can hinder leadership that's really there. And so we, we did have to have that conversation. And, I, and, and, and I would, with a couple of staffers, I was like a little leery. And, and am I going to be able to sell them on it? Of course, again, not realizing that, oh yeah, Talbot, you're the pastor. You don't have to sell them on your idea. <laughs> so, but fortunately, uh, uh, across the board, people, yes, let's take this risk. Let, let's do this different thing. And I, I do think that if awake to the Holy Spirit wasn't such a value, 
we would have been that much more leery to alter our process. The, the goal and the strategy is still the same. We still want everybody in a life group. Just kind of, It's a matter of how you get there in this case. I love that. What's one big risk you're taking right now or a far-fetched idea you're exploring? Yeah, there's a, uh, I don't expect your listeners to know a lot about Charlotte geography or Charlotte history, but there is a new master planned community called the River District within about eight or 10 miles of our Moss campus in our quadrant of town. And uh, there's a previous master planned community was called Ballantyne and the Methodists were famously late getting there. And so uh, sort of notoriously ineffective in this, where, where there's some other major mega campuses. And so we, we just are really feeling that calling that, ah, there's a, there's a third campus and we've got some technology that is scalable and repeatable. And yeah. we've got some DNA that we think is worthy of replicating out there. We're not trying to be another church. We, we think the DNA that we have to replicate over there will, is good. And so uh, th- th- this, this river district is just now on the draw. It's not like it's going to be open in a year. Not, this is not a subdivision. This is a mammoth project right. with huge amounts of infrastructure. But we just know we need to be there sooner rather than later. It's doing right now, even in advance of that. Are you already worshiping out there, groups out there? What does that look like even ahead? There's, of no, the there's no there there. Okay. It's, yeah, there's nothing there yet. We, we, this is just, we have it on paper that the River District is coming. There's a website and there are, there's a master, master plan, but there, there's no bulldozers or anything out there yet. So you're, you're but just, we know when there are, we'll be there. Right. It's a readiness posture, right? It's, it's, yes. you're going to be there and um, that's going to get it. Uh, one, one more question kind of in this phase. Um, if you could go back and do one moment over again, what would it be? I, I would, I, when employment needs to be ended. Okay. Without emotion, because I've, I've learned how to do this. Uh, You're saying uh, literally letting left. a staff person go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Instead of hemming and hawing and passive aggressive, which I'm naturally, that's my natural language. A passive aggressive, passive aggression. And instead of that, just you, you re- rehearse the little speech ahead of time. I mean, I, goodness, I can internalize a sermon every week to preach that without notes. I can, I can do this and just say, this is not a good fit. And today's your last day. And our business manager's here to help you take care of you. You don't apologize. You don't hem and haw. This, this, nope, this, this is not a good fit. And I have um, lost many nights sleep and, and gone through a lot of anxiety instead of trying to manage my way around or do the calculus around instead of just being clear and upfront and minimizing the drama, uh, the, the, the long hellos and the short goodbyes. So that's what I would do on thinking of several different occasions. But isn't that a challenge in the church world? Don't we feel like is, as ministers of the gospel, is is part of a clergy class that we've got to be more uh, lenient. We've got to be over grace. I mean, I, I sense the I sense the pull is in the other direction. And I yeah, yeah, because pastoring and leading are totally different skill sets. 
However, when, when your organization grows and you realize that you are responsible for spending the money that people give well, yeah. and if the money that they are giving is not being well used in a staff member, particular staff member's performance, you're, you're, in a sense, you're stealing. You're, you are enabling ongoing underperformance and while at the same time stealing from the congregation. Other than that, I suppose it's a great idea. <laughs> so, uh, I'm, I'm a lot more proactive these days and I've got a great business manager who yeah. is, uh, uh, no, you don't know this one. This one's name is Dean, okay. who is uh, just so good at minimizing drama and being able to, to say difficult things in an unemotional way, but yet not a hurtful way. And just let's make this decision. And so that's another instance we can kind of go back to you know, you mentioned earlier that you're really kind of building a staff around you to, to lean complement to who you are and complement to your natural wiring uh, rather yes. than the tendency of safety of finding somebody that is like me that I know I can get along with easily. Or, or spending all this time trying to improve my weaknesses, which are only going to get so far. Right. Uh, rather, rather than developing my strengths, you, you may or may not have heard of the, the American tennis player, Billie Jean King. It always comes back to tennis. Billie Jean King <laughs> who played Bobby Riggs in the match yeah. of the Battle of the Sexes. And, well, she had a terrible forehand. And, and, uh, but what she did is she only worked occasionally on her terrible forehand and instead worked on her serve and her volley and her backhand, which were all world-class. And so she won Wimbledon, I think, six times. I would take Wimbledon, and having had a terrible forehand myself, I would take six Wimbledon titles with a bad forehand. But when I was playing, I would devote all my energy to working on that bad forehand. In the same way, in ministry, doesn't it make more sense? Okay, I can preach and I can counsel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to work on those things. And I'm going to build up people around me who can help me on those areas where I'm not as good. Yeah, because it seems that you'll spend your effort and energy trying to get better in a place where you're not naturally gifted rather than yeah. trying to even be even better in a place where you are and really push for yeah. excellence. Yeah. And so Absolutely. it's just a direction of ministry resources toward those places where you can, you can know maybe the return on that investment, if we use the marketplace term, is greater. There's a greater return on investment by getting stronger in your strengths than there is trying to, you know, buff it or or yes. uh, buttress your weaknesses. Yes. And that's, that's great. I think that's a huge, a huge moment, especially for, for young uh, leaders right out of seminary. We don't get taught that in seminary, right? We get taught in seminary that you have to be perfect in every area. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, then there's somehow a deficiency. God's not going to use you. And so go back to the drawing board and get this right. Yes. That's, that's great. There's three questions I ask every podcast guest. Uh, I love it because it creates a little bit of continuity from episode to episode. And uh, I really look forward myself personally to some of these answers as well. I've, I've learned a lot uh, through asking them. So here's what, what's one daily or regular habit you practice that keeps you close to the heart of God? Yeah, I have been for the last uh, 18 months, I think, I've been writing my prayers every morning and uh, keeping the notebooks 
And what an incredible record of God's faithfulness. I have all these dominoes I've been calling them and, and uh, they've all fallen with one exception. And I'm, I'm kind of shaking my fist at God because the one <laughs> exception has to do with, has to do with me. And, and I'm, I'm just like, I'm, Lord, you've, you've made all these other dominoes fall. I'm glad these other people are getting blessed. I'm ready for my harvest to come in and my blessing to come in. So uh, that has definitely helped writing my prayers. You go back and systematically review them. What's the practice beyond the, the first practice there? So the first practice is write down the daily prayers. What's the next level practice behind that, Talbot? Are you systematically going back and rereading that? What, what's that look like? Yeah, I, I actually have the, my, my first two notebooks. They're like right at my feet right now in my office. And so, I'll, wow, look where I was at the beginning of 2017. Thank God I'm doing better in 2018. And, hmm. and uh, there I was praying for that in the middle of 17. So for sure, I go back and review. It seems like too, that that aspect of celebration and ministry, we can be yeah. so wired and focused for the next hill we were called to take for the next victory we're called to claim. Seems like you have kind of built-in method of celebration right there in front of you as well. Yes, yes. That's good. If you talk to your first year of ministry and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? that uh, work every day and you will get better at what you do. Work so every day I, I, and you'll get better at what you do. Unpack yeah, that. Yeah, the, 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 the drudgery doesn't seem like drudgery because I really like doing it. But the routine, the mundane activity of opening up your Bible to get ready for a message and taking the notes and doing the research and brainstorming and cataloging and all that, I, uh, you, you just will keep getting better and better and better. And I, I, I like I, I mentioned earlier, my improvement between 46 and 56 ha- has been probably way more than it was between 28 or 30. Mm. And when I turned 45 and it's just, it, it, it is a, a matter of that craft of preaching and my, even my ability to identify w- what's really going on in counseling and the, the level of improvement in that. So 28-year-old me, uh, I am now pastoring the kind of church that didn't exist in 1990. There was, there was right. no such thing as a multi-ethnic, thoroughly modern United Methodist Church in 1990. did not exist. And now I have this incredible privilege of, of, of actually leading one. So there's nothing in seminary or nothing in my background really that prepared me for this other than just realizing that you can continue to improve. That's, that's great. Is there one book that you consistently recommend or give as a gift? Well, come on. When I'm blessing houses and the house blessing is going well and they like the magnet, they want to know about the church, of course I'll give them The Storm Before the Calm as a book. As Hey, this guy really can preach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I do tend to give some of my books out. Storm Before the Calm or Crash Test Dummies are the most popular, I think. But in terms of other gifts, what I give to younger communicators, almost without fail, is Andy Stanley's Communicating for a Change. Yeah. Why has that been important for you to give? Because it is the, uh, locates the genius of the one-point message. Yeah. Is that the I, we, he, Uh, me, we, God, you, we. Yep. Me, we, God, you, we. Is that taught that to pastors in India? Actually, 
did it translate? Because I always wonder, sometimes our little tropes and, 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 you know, devices of the U.S., does it translate to those other cultures? Those words did. Me, there's a lot that doesn't, but me, we, God, you, we, that did. Yeah. And is that a part of your process every week, Talbot, is to sit down with those five points and just kind of work through? Um, I'm, it, it has become second nature. Okay. So I don't even have to think that process. And, and because it's second nature, I, I vary it a lot. Yeah. But uh, the wordsmithing of the bottom line is the, is the, I mean, that's the, that's the blood and the sweat and the tears. And when I get it and the bottom line comes, ah, the week, the week works. Everything. And that's good. just that one. This is what it's all about. That one yeah. sentence, that one line. Do you remember that what last a, week's was? Well, put yeah. You, put uh, you on the spot. Well, I'm, I'm doing a series called Eye Rollers. Okay. About the uh, Jesus' sayings in Matthew 5, where you know what he means. You're just sure it can't be done. Yeah. And yeah. so you want to you, you eye roll at Jesus, like seriously, Jesus. And uh, the first one was uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so I used Matthew 5 and brought in Romans 5.10 because I'm not a red letter Christian. I, uh, red and black letters are all inspired. And uh, so the point was you can only love your enemies when you realize you're the loved enemy. Oh, wow. Romans, yeah, Romans 5.10 says you were enemies of God. <laughs> the least politically correct statement ever. And yeah. so I had some fun with, let's put a banner out in front. You are an enemy of God in church on Sunday. See how that goes. <laughs> that sounds like but, more Southern Baptist than United Methodist. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, but that you, you can only love your enemies when you realize first that you're the loved enemy. Wow. And that really resonated with people. You, you kind of get that moment ever when you, when you land that bottom line? Well, that one, yes. At, yeah. at all, uh, every time I preach it, there was a, ooh, yeah. yeah. That audible, I mean, it, it, uh-huh. I don't know of a better rush when preaching. Obviously, when you see someone, I mean, let's, let's take the invitation part out. Let's take the transformation part. Let's be purely carnal here for a second. That audible <gasps> gasp factor yeah. moment is, is pretty killer, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Yes. I love it. It's worth the work then is what you're saying. Yes. Talbot, thanks for uh, opening up. Uh, a little bit of insight into into how God has used you, even how he's in the midst of of shaping you right now. And, and I just really appreciate you taking some time out uh, to share with our listeners and to really um, walk through some of those breakthrough moments. Thanks for being on the podcast, Talbot. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. No, listen, I, I can't wait to see uh, how God's going to use this. Thank you for listening to My Ministry Breakthrough from the Oxano Podcast Network. You can head over to myministrybreakthrough.com to join the conversation and access our show notes, including the books or other resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoy hearing these stories of ministry breakthrough, we would be honored if you would subscribe, rate, and even leave a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.